0: I think the first product we ever built was an internal prototype of credibility assessment. Platforms are clearly dealing with this, the big, the, the big giants. They have their own ways of trying to moderate this content. Do we already have something that's finding stuff that these guys are missing? Within a year, we had we, we wanted to meet that objective by finding a way in which that the, those technical components could be bolted on together in a really rough and ready way to, to have. A, moment where we at least had a technical value proposition. And to our surprise, we did, Um, and we did at a scale that we didn't anticipate. I'm Lyric Jane, and I'm the founder and CEO of Logically.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, And today, how Lyric Jane built the platform to address the challenges posed by misinformation. All this and more on Code Story. Lyric Jane comes from a family of business people and is an engineer by training. He was born in India and spent the first half of his life there When he was 12, he moved to the United Kingdom. He's always been fascinated in physical engineering mostly, which is interesting since he plays in the digital space now. He's a huge football fan, that's European football or soccer for us in the US. In fact, he was obsessed with it while he was attending university, playing the console games and memorizing the rosters and stats for the live sport. He specifically loves Manchester United and typically spent around 20 hours a week watching football. In 2015, Lyric unfortunately lost his grandmother to what he states is health misinformation from forwards on WhatsApp. This combined with the Brexit happenings, the US elections, and general world events, he started to see firsthand the trend that behavior was being influenced by online activity. This is the creation story of Logically.
0: We work to identify and respond to misinformation and disinformation, what people might generically call so-called fake news. We try and identify it at scale, and we find ways in which we can respond to it. And usually that ends up with us working with various governmental organizations as well as various platforms. What we choose to focus on is really where misinformation and disinformation could have an implication to public health, public safety, election integrity and national security. Within within that entire ecosystem, how do we find a way in which preemptively or at the point of these threats becoming live, we spot them uh, instantly or within half an hour? And also decide what kind of proportionate and effective response to it would be, kind of, when does a takedown work? When does a label work? And when does just putting a fact check out that work? So that's what we do. Um, I never thought in a million years this is what I would be doing. I had a very tracked route uh, until I was about, until I found it logically, going through some good universities, um, wanted to get grades there, had some uh, internships at at what I call the dark side in financial services at at an investment banking firm, semi-technical at the time. And the summers post, logically, the hypothetical summers, I was going to be working at a Tech organization, kind of a, a, a Google type, a Google Facebook type organization, and then eventually, maybe three, four, five years down the line, maybe try my hand at entrepreneurship because that, that was a bit of a bug for me. But 2015 and 2016 happened uh, outside of the broader implications of 2016. I suppose 2015 was a really strange year for me. Unfortunately, lost uh, my grandmother to a bit of tragedy due to health misinformation. She. Was 86 at the time, but she still used WhatsApp and got these awful forwards saying, Hey, drink this special green juice, give up your cancer meds, and you'll live longer. And we definitely lost her a lot earlier than we ought to have. That followed by 2016, which was again weird because I was in the UK for the first half and in the US for the second half, so it was almost at the right place where the action was that year. And my my personal circumstances around the European referendum here in the UK were quite unique. Um, My hometown in the UK happens to be a place called Stone, the highest Brexit voting place in all of the UK. And where I was at the time, Cambridge, the highest Remain voting place in all of the UK. Like, no jokes, literally the two most polar, polar opposite locations and constituencies in the UK. Matthew, the people I was closest to had very different views, had access to very different information, and that's where kind of I start, first started paying attention to how different people that I knew had different social media feeds, had very different views on what the truth was, and started to see that a lot of behavior was being in, uh, influenced by online activity and even some by malicious actors online. But at that point it was kind of, hey, this is a problem of the world. I don't know if I'm going to end up doing something about this, but I, I, I kept an eye on it. But The same kind of dynamic repeated itself in America when I was a, in, in Boston. And at that time, it's kind of um, how a lot of entrepreneurship stories go, uh, I guess, where um, I was working uh, on some research at C-Cell and the MIT Media Lab, tinkering with natural language understanding to see what the stage of the art could be. Could we get computers to not just do a lot of processing and tagging of content, but actually understand it? and understands it at a scale that then allows them to make assessments on what could be true, what could, what, what, what could be false, etc. That's when kind of the aha moment occurred and it seemed like there was there was an opportunity technically with enough support and encouragement, there seemed to be an operation uh, opportunity as a business and decided to take the leap to, to found the company.
1: Well, let's, let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you build, how long it took you to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life.
0: I think the first product we ever built was an internal prototype of credibility assessment. More MVP stasis would be our consumer products, our, our mobile app. So the, the two are very related, kind of the credibility uh, assessment technology was kind of a fundamental milestone for us because we basically have to figure out, hey, platforms are clearly doing this, the big the, the big giants, they have their own ways of trying to moderate this content. Do we already have something that's finding stuff that these guys are missing? So kind of within a year, we had—we we wanted to meet that objective by finding a way in which that the, those technical components could be bolted on together in a really rough and ready way to, to have a moment where we at least had a technical value proposition And to our surprise, we did. um, And we did at a scale that we didn't anticipate. We we thought it'd be a few percent, but it was uh, a lot larger, some for technical reasons, some for various policy reasons and platforms. And then we decided, okay, how do we we package this up into a potential product now that we know we definitely have something technically? uh, We decided to focus on the consumer uh, market initially, uh, because at that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of recognition around these challenges within platforms. Platforms wanted to do everything themselves and were hesitant to admit how much of a problem it was. So we decided to focus on our consumers to say, hey, can we put an experience in people's hands that could be their source of credible information, contextualized to show various perspectives, but also give them a way in which they could at the click of the button verify whether something was true, false missing, kind of fact check it automatically if possible, or at least get some heuristics around whether to believe it or not. So that was the first thing that we built. And it was very much a probably a lesson in how not to build a product because it was very much technically driven, driven by a lot of academia, a lot of research around, hey, users should like that. This should be good for users. And th- at that time that was the makeup of the team. Uh, we were all a bunch of engineers trying to build something cool with very few product people and very few market and market research people and although we knew we needed to do that we deliberately chose to ignore it uh, to to get something out there that we thought we would use and it did well reasonably well it kind of got a few hundred thousand people uh, using it at different uh, moments uh, in in time but fundamentally because of the absence of of, uh, a lot of the piled yards we put in uh, during the early days the app sucked at retention, uh, so it, it 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 had really poor retention. But it had this crazy usage during critical events, even as recently as the U.S. election. The app was that the app still exists and is operational. We we had a spike where on on the day of the debates, it's kind of over a hundred thousand people. We're using the app and actively using the app uh, because we were live fact checking the uh, the presidential debates uh, within the app. Similar election events around the world, early days of COVID, usage kind of skyrocketed uh, at that scale when there's these big global events. But also when in a particular city, in a particular country, uh, things seem to be on a a risk-on mode. So we thought "Hmm, there's there's still something clearly there that we're providing. There's some value we're providing to users that isn't really the news side of it, the curation side of it, uh, but is is this ability to help users orient themselves during high-risk events, say. A parallel track of work at the time was figuring out how to work with organizations in a top-down way that had a lever on the information ecosystem, so mainly platforms and governments. And since then, uh, our our work with Logically Intelligence, our threat intelligence platform, and our fact-checking automation platform uh, have really been two kind of commercial successes um, that we had to go through the hard yards of learning a few lessons uh, through consumer initially.
1: So before we move on from the MVP, with any you know, early product, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs around. We're gonna, we're only going to build this to do this thing. And you mentioned it was engineering-driven in the early days, and not so much product-driven. And and there's also probably some technical debt you accepted early on. So tell me about some of those trade-offs you made early on, and how you coped with those decisions.
0: Kind of. Uh an interesting story because some, some of this applies uh, to the MVP and some of it applies to kind of the early days of developing of what what are today our core our, our, our products kind of the, the the trade-offs we really pretty much every organization has to make is kind of what are you building what are you buying what are you partnering on and i think from a very early day we did have a little bit of a not built here syndrome and kind if of we knew kind of by just spending that extra hour on something or an extra day on something we were going to be able to get some low level optimization that was going to be super good for scale so i think we we, we almost focused on scale way too early but then we overcorrected so when we overcorrected so the consumer app it, it, it worked for a reasonable scale kind of hundreds of thousands of users it would have worked for millions as well in just a load of data but when we focus on what we what happened when we worked at these large-scale applications, it was still designed for scale. But it, we we kind of lost that obsession over micro-level optimizations that would just give us that extra five percent, extra 10%, and all of those would just stack up. Really low-level uh, implementations that would, would would have an optimization breakthrough for us. But during kind of the 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 middle uh, the middle ages <laughs> in, in, in in today's terms we really focused more on kind of let's get something to use that is usable let's get something that works within their workflows all all of that and we did that and it, we, it, it, it worked in normal circumstances so it could take in tens of millions of social posts millions of uh, news articles so that's reasonably scalable for for an early stage startup. And then we're hit with, <laughs> uh, we're we're hit with COVID, <laughs> and two governments around the world want to use us to identify huge risk events that could result in because of COVID. Kind of in the UK, we saw five G towers burning, for example. Kind of, and the problem for us all of a sudden became okay, we're seeing ten to twenty million of these things on a on a daily basis. We for COVID would have to monitor a billion conversations a day consistently. So how do we scale a hundred X without burning out at, le- at least 100x of our compute power. We also had made some design decisions for usability, which meant some of our computation didn't scale linearly. So it wasn't like, hey, 10, 000, uh, 10, 10 million pieces of content and a billion pieces of content. It's just 100x computation. Because of the way fact-checking and a few systems work, there's a need for pairwise comparisons. So ten million things being compared to ten million, and um, a, b- a billion things being compared to billions. So that, that's not just a well, how much that a, a million trillion com- uh, computations, but a million trillion sets of conversation, uh, computations in theory. So it's, it's it's an interesting story around how at different stages of if, if evolution, some some of the things that you retain and you bring, especially by by having a, a deeply technical team, sometimes could have a backfire effect, but equally. Uh, on, on the other side of things by rushing things central. We get products that are usable to customers quickly. There is also a risk of these black swan events or really high uh, usage occurring that we, 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 we have no barometer to mention, kind of, kind of as, as, as a company, if you'd asked us two years ago, what, what's the highest level of volume you'd ever think of going through logically in the next two or three years, we probably would have said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll 10X our volume of where we are right now, but we had to 100X within within weeks.
1: How did you go about building your roadmap after that? So, you know, you you kind of interwove a few things into into your story there. But but to organize it a bit, how did you go about building your roadmap and deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build?
0: This is an interesting area because I can see a transition in how we've approached building our roadmap. Historically, um, kind of before last year, I think, Key milestones are a really good way of orienting a roadmap during the early days, because if because in the early days it's almost existential. If you don't hit those milestones, you're you're dead, or you have to choose to pivot, or, or, or something has to change. So we we focused very much on kind of okay, these are the milestones we have to hit because of various considerations: commercial, clients, investors, technical feasibility, whatever. Um, so having roadmaps focused on. Uh, those milestone events that aren't too far ahead uh, within kind of shortest timeframes, uh, was a useful aid uh, for us. Allowed us to ensure that our roadmap was um, fluid and agile enough to accommodate to, for various changes that happened as a result of commercial conversations we were having, or as a result of new uh, research becoming available from our own team or by the by, by the rest of the world. But it, it also allowed us to make sure that we got a load of stuff done, uh, a lot of technical milestones proven, a lot of traction milestones proven, and usability milestones proven. So, those were kind of the ways in which we operated, where that existential risk still existed and was, was, there, was there was a risk factor around if milestones aren't going to be hit, there, there, there could be changes in which markets we address, what geographies we address, et cetera, and, and the kind of missing milestones would would, would significantly uh, influence follow-on business strategy from there on. But, as, as, kind of a bit of maturity has come into um, us as an organisation, as well as the product roadmap, and having a, a, a solid baseline uh, to work on top of, the way in which we orient our product roadmap has changed quite significantly. Kind of, kind of, there's a need for a lot more formal business practices to ensure that views from commercial stakeholders, research stakeholders, are kind of jointly introduced into the product roadmap. Uh, so that there's also this kind of tech push of hey here's the art of the possible and we could do this uh, as well as kind of clear business polls that are uh, helping influence and shape the product roadmap we also have the unusual luxury kind of halfway through uh, our journey so far of having customers pretty much or lookalikes of our users within our own organization And especially for a technology company, that's a rare position to be in. So as as a description of the team, kind of where where we're 120 odd people now, but 60 of us are on the technology, engineering, data science side, kind of a dozen or so people on the product side, Uh, but we have 30 uh, to 35 subject matter experts uh, on uh, open source intelligence investigations, fact checking, uh, misinformation and disinformation policy. So kind of having those people internally these, they, those were lookalikes of what our users within governments and platforms look like. So we we were able to get views from our users without even having users, and that really helped accelerate and shape the direction of our roadmap. And it allowed us to test in an environment that was very low risk. So it, it, it was an environment where, fine, if 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 some things went perfect, it, it, it kind of you, you basically have a very unfussy customer who, if you're solving for their pain point they will love you. And if we're able to get that validation internally, great. Then we can throw proper product resources into getting it operational, getting it to scale, putting it to alpha beta, and then shoving it into prod. Um, so that, we're, that I think, certainly over the last nine months or so has been a real success story for us, uh, and we're hoping to, hoping to
1: continue that. So you mentioned team a, a, a bit in that explanation so how did you go about building your team what did you look for in those people to indicate to you that they were the winning horses to join you
0: from from probably day one we've probably been biased towards alignment to the mission and passion for the mission and that passion could be for a variety of reasons it could be because of the impact of the mission it could be because of the technical challenge the mission poses etc but that alignment for us has been super important and we know that there's fine if if, if uh, obviously for technical roles and for different roles people need to have a certain level of competence uh, kind of up down 20 30 40 percent in terms of where they are in their career and their professional development that can be quite quickly shortcutted by investing in, in those people but what is quite hard to invent is that hunger and personal passion to really go after uh, something and um, I think even even till date our hiring criteria, hiring process kind of biased towards that to ensure that we prioritize candidates who are able to demonstrate that. Some people have caught on to that and they try and kind of overcorrect and really uh, showcase the passion uh, and it, it, it becomes easy to see through that. But um, I think fundamentally by by uh, trying to orient our recruitment process to get to know people in that way and ensure that there's there are key levers and key drivers that are pushing them on, I think um, has, has been a source of great resilience for us because um, uh, knock on wood where where we're in a more a fortunate position uh, today than we've been in, in the past. there's been darker days. there's been days of zero traction. We, it was what, uh, rare for a startup to survive for two and a half years roughly without without a cent in revenue. I, I don't think we would have made it through those stages without ensuring that that's the, the kind of team that we built. that's the kind of people we had and that's the kind of culture uh, that we gravitated towards.
1: let's switch to scalability a little bit and and again you touched on this uh, throughout your your prior explanations but let's let's focus in on that topic did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow
0: i think in principle we did Um, in principle we knew this isn't a kind of a, 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 a sas thing that one client in the world is going to use for low-volume queries, we knew this is an Internet-scale internet initiative. We just, I think, misjudged how big the Internet is. Uh, not, not, not in as, as simplistic terms as those, but um, I think we didn't anticipate how quickly zero to one was going to happen for us. And we built for scale for normal times, and we almost kind of had the perfect storm of, High risk events, engagement, new product updates, everything hitting hitting at the same time that resulted in us having to fight a lot to achieve scalability. But what did help was having that kind of mindset and culture of scalability kind of embedded within the team. We were able to kind of come to come with problems from 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 multiple angles because scalability has multiple implications scalability at what cost it also means scalability at what technical limit and also scalability at what latency and other other kind of technical criteria by focusing different people in the team on on those different priorities i think we've always had an eye on on that scalability factor particularly around cost for instance when we noticed that internally we ourselves didn't have all, all of the answers uh, and we were facing some kind of industry challenges we we were uh, I think, why used to seek support uh, in the, on those occasions. On some occasions, build internal stuff and fuse it together with uh, stuff that was happening in the industry. And we got lucky uh, along the way as well. Like, GPUs got 10x cheaper. It's, it's weird saying, saying that today, where kind of there's, there's no GPUs and everyone's struggling to find PlayStations. Still, from a, from a cloud compute point of view, for the same per unit computation for machine learning, it's around 10x cheaper than it used to be in, in 2017. So, external factors, internal factors have really helped us um, as well as ensuring that we had a team that focused on on all of the limitations that come with scalability, all, all, all of the criteria that are important to look at when, when looking at scalability, the technical factors and the
1: and the cost related factors. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of?
0: The team. Um, I think for, for looking at it personally, I don't think a single line of code I've ever written is being used by the team anywhere, so I, I don't think I can uh, claim that I've built any part of our our, our, our technology or our products. Uh, yeah, Everything was thrown out, I think, somewhere in month, month 18. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm really, really proud of the team, the way it's evolved, uh, the, the new people that we continue to bring in, uh, but also kind of the impact uh, we're able to have. Because uh, I know that, that, that's something that drives me and it drives a lot of people in, in our team. It's everything from kind of those micro level incidents similar to the experience, the unfortunate experience of my grandmother kind of, kind of people don't often recognize that misinformation and disinformation do, doesn't just lead to this online circus, it has real world impact kind of. There's there's places in the world where people get killed for whisper trails that just go out of control. There's then also macro events like elections and vaccine rollouts, etc., that all get in, in influenced uh, because of the dynamics around misinformation and disinformation. So looking at the impact we've been able to achieve by, in, in principle, preventing a lot of those incidents and reducing the amplitude with which some of the harm is occurring right now in the world of misinformation, disinformation, I think that's something that definitely puts a puts a smile on my face and where it, it, it kind of exits on to do more. Uh, we want to be in a position where every election in a major democracy, uh, democracy out there, we're able to help safeguard. We'd we'd love to do that. Every kind of national security interest that's aligned with kind of the values of Five Eyes countries, Native countries, we'd love to help protect those. Every kind of public safety incident that's about to happen, kind of incidents like what happened at Capitol Hill, the more we're able to prevent that, the better. And even the micro level kind of threats to life or people getting nasty experiences online and offline, uh, the more of those we can prevent. Um, I think uh, we'd like to do as, as, to help mitigate as many of those as possible.
1: Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: I think probably one on an entrepreneurial front uh, might have, might be around delaying making a bet that you know you need to make. Uh, so, for instance, we uh, we we from day one knew we needed to find ways of engaging with platforms and governments. And we delayed that out for 12 to 18 months before we ever picked up the phone or wrote an email to any of those institutions. So we always knew we needed to do that. But there's this kind of slight schizophrenic um, attitude um, that um, early-stage startups tend to have around, hey, we really need to focus, we really need to focus, we really need to focus because if, if you're focusing on everything, you're doing nothing. But also, hey, there's a big opportunity we want to expand the pie, big pie, big pie, big pie. And I think it's, it's a very tough trade-off uh, to try and make. It's a tough balance to try and achieve. And I think we could have certainly prioritized the markets that we're currently prioritizing a lot er- earlier. Uh, but also made other, other decisions like, okay, let's like bias towards action, trying things out, failing. It's, it's a very Silicon Valley uh, attitude. It's a very American entrepreneurship attitude. It's... Not something that is—it's it, something that certainly exists, but in moderation, I guess. In in European uh, entrepreneurship circles, I think uh, biasing ourselves towards uh, conducting many small experiments instead of uh, fewer lumpier ones uh, would have could, could be could be uh, could have got us to where we are uh, quicker.
1: So, what does the future look like for logically the product and for your team?
0: it's it's an interesting time um, there's there's a there's a lot of tailwinds to our space um, there's a, a lot of interesting work that's happening in the world in civil society organizations and research communities but because of the unfortunate facts of how the world has evolved and the incidents that we've seen the 5g towers being burnt here in uh, the UK to Capitol Hill in America, there's real urgency and momentum behind people wanting to do something in this space. So, we'd love to be as as large a part of that conversation as as we can. Uh, there's this ongoing conversation uh, around how on earth do we find a way in which platforms could be regulated, how we could come to a way in which safety is prioritized and there is a duty of care of sorts that's introduced within platforms with respect to their users. So. That that's an interesting area of work for us because uh, what we what we do is we we operate slab bank between governments and platforms. So uh, we we feel there's a real opportunity there for us to re- have real impact and to have and, and and to shortcut the way in which decisions and assessments are currently being made. Kind of to, to to go into the subject matter slightly around Capitol Hill, the big the big failure was everyone had intelligence, or not everyone, but kind of significant institutions around the world including us, had intelligence around what was going to happen 36 hours, 24 hours before the fact. Some chose to share it uh, with various governmental agencies. Some didn't. Some didn't know who to. And once, even once it was shared, it was, there was a huge coordination breakdown as is what usually happens with these kinds of incidents. So what we feel we were able to achieve by being someone who hopefully the public can trust, who governments and agencies can learn to trust and platforms can trust, is become someone of an, something of an intermediary that is equivalent to an SNP or a Moody's, but for online information and online content kind of they 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 rate financial instruments right now for the level of risk why can't we do that with information not necessarily deciding misinformation and disinformation changing the language to uh, this this criteria of risk kind of potential, inauthentic account or activity or content online could compromise public health, public safety, election integrity, national security? How do we quantify the level of risk that exists there? And how do we rate the level of risk to a high level, high, high standard? That's kind of the direction that we're going in. And we, we, we'd love to engage with as many stakeholders as possible to try and create that kind of ecosystem because it's, it's happening in pockets. And in terms of the team, uh, the team's in a really interesting place because We've doubled uh, our our size year on year, Um, hiring people, kind of 60, 70 people during during the course of the pandemic. And it's um, on on course to double again. Uh, A lot of fun, uh, interesting (laughs) challenges that come with uh, growing and scaling. Really looking forward to welcoming uh, everyone who joins us uh, because although we have a few successes under our belt, it's still very much uh, the the start of the ride for us.
1: Let's switch to you, Lyric. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why.
0: Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not pick a cliche example because, um, uh, th- th- again, there are cliche examples because there are definitely some outlier people who've seen great success. Um, I, 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 I hesitate to name the techno king, but it, it, it's hard to look, look away from, uh, from him and uh, the large uh, technology companies uh, that exist today. Uh, the way I'd like to kind of frame it is there's kind of lessons learned in all, all of their entrepreneurial stories and uh, all of their journeys. There's kind of these ideas, uh, things like uh, the concept of creative destruction. Almost sometimes the best way to create a new paradigm is to figure out how to, how to, how to what existing paradigm isn't working. And find a way of breaking it down block by block and replacing it with your own block. So those 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 kinds of ideas, those kinds of concepts, I think have been great influences. And maybe personally, I think uh, family has been a a, a, a great influence. I'm, I'm I'm probably not the more interesting entrepreneurial story in in, in my family. Um, my my father, for example, he he was from a rural area of, of, of India. He worked a lot of, uh, during his uh, the early part of his life. Uh, as a textile engineer worked in kind of these textile factories worked his way up to becoming a manager of these factories and eventually someone entrusted him with running the entire factory and then he, he got to he got to own it because someone decided to back him and uh, eventually kind of he did reasonably well for him, uh, himself certainly not a, a, a well-known name of sorts uh, but that journey from kind of one to the, the stage that he got to super impressive the level of dedication and hard work his his story um, has is scary sometimes and i think uh, me and my siblings we, we we try and emulate a lot of that and having two older sisters despite uh well one of them studied to be a doctor but then ended up becoming an entrepreneur so looking at their own stories the way they're determined in the paths that they're pursuing uh, really helped influence me during the early earlier days kind of i almost always felt like a like a 30-year-old in a 16-year-old's body. And today, I feel like a, a 40-year-old in a 25-year-old's body. So I think it, 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 that, that, that that that's kind of the foundation that really um, helped and um, I'm privileged to have experience that.
1: We talked about a mistake, um, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: I'd, I'd probably come to have, have come to America a lot sooner than I did and also on a personal level I'm, I'm still not sure where I stand on this decision but I founded logically um, between my bachelor's and master's and I chose to carry on for the first year that I was running the company those are probably two decisions that I'd that I'd look at uh, so rolling back the years I was um, at logically as a concept started when I was at um, in, in Boston later I had to come back to Cambridge to finish uh, my, my, my master's and at that point that summer was when I was deciding whether or not to uh, incorporate the company what to do about pursuing my education further etc and the decision to continue was interesting and it helped sometimes because uh, I was still using the same networks I was exposed to the same people advisors etc on the flip side although I was working 12 hours a day for Logically I wasn't working 16 hours a day for Logically because I had whatever number of lectures to attend or even the minimal amount of coursework to do I had to get it across the way and I feel during that first year those extra four hours would have been significant it's it's a very hard decision to make um, both because kind of personal cultural background really admire the stories of a lot of people who do choose to who did at that point make the make the decision to drop out from a personal point of view is something that I haven't reflected upon too too long but I think the, the first sense I get of how could we have got to where we are quicker, or how could we have got to where we are uh, by by, by following a different story? I think if I dropped out, I probably would have ended up starting logically in in America instead of starting logically um, in in the UK. Although that would mean my team would look very different, so I I don't know how well that would have worked out. That fundamentally felt like a a sliding doors moment of sorts. There's been a few other moments like that, but maybe just because that was one of the oldest... Uh, if it feels like the one that could have had the, the biggest potential impact.
1: Well, last question. They're, you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: There's this great affinity that the young generation of the moment have around entrepreneurship. I think there's this... The huge rise in kind of hey let's let everyone hustle and like everyone can be an entrepreneur etc and i think a lot of the positive stories that have resulted in entrepreneur from following the path of building your own startup etc are incredibly appealing however not a lot of people see the flip side of things and i was fortunate to have some of that exposed to me at a program called start mit which kind of not only showcased the success stories but the, the, the ones that didn't quite go as well despite best efforts despite on on paper doing things right and I think that is something I'd like to try and convey to most people who are looking to start out on the journey. It sounds like a negative point um, kind of uh, that almost tries to discourage them but I think it's important to understand that the journey is hard it's long most of the time it's not likely going to end up exactly how you think at that moment in time and the law of probability suggests that it's not going to work but there's every reason that it can and you've got to work to make sure that it can but at that moment in time you need confidence in in, in yourself in your personal context in your, in your level of psychological safety at the time to be able to make that decision in an, in an informed way and I think at, at the moment we probably are slightly uh, aggressive with how how hardware outsizing the, the, the culture of tech-led entrepreneurship. Again, it's good. It is, it is regardless of how the journey ends up, it is incredibly rewarding. You, you learn more than you do doing most things, but the physical, mental, social toll uh, that it takes is significant. Some people find ways of mitigating that, but not, not a lot. And uh, examples of, especially within the first two years, when it's usually just the founding team and very few other people, of, of, of burnouts and crises is, is, is quite high. So the, the, that's a long-winded way of saying to whoever's next to me, are you sure you want to do this? And if you're sure you want to do this, why you? And I wouldn't dwell on that point too uh, uh, too much, but certainly ensuring that the person knows that, yes, this is definitely what I want to do and I want to commit the next decade or two of my life to this, it, it needs to be a well-reasoned, rational decision, uh, which can have emotional factors, but it needs it, it, it needs to be a decision that the person is making, not just because of the momentum behind them, uh, but by fairly evaluating their situation.
1: Well, Lyric, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Logically.
0: Great. Right. Thanks, Noah.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story.